Hey everybody, Chibi here. Before we get into today's conversation, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for showing us that you care about poetry and getting to know more poets across this country. If you've liked what you've heard so far, please make sure to hit that subscribe button, share these episodes, tell a friend, rate and review us wherever you can. And if you want to know more about the things and the initiatives that we are putting in place, you can look us up on Facebook at The Blah Poetry Spot. That is B-L-A-H, The Blah Poetry Spot on Facebook or Write Art Out on Instagram. That's W-R-I-T-E-A-R-T-O-U-T, Write Art Out. Thank you so much, and without further ado, let's get into today's conversation. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Blah Poetry Spot presents Words and Shit. So excited to be here with you guys. We are live on Facebook uh, for the first time uh, for this show. Uh, My name is Chibi. I'm going to be one of your hosts, if you don't already know. My other illustrious co-host, Eddie Vega, San Antonio Taco Poet. How are you doing over there? Hey, it's great, man. Great for a Thursday. I think it's Thursday, right? Because I can't... we're here, so it has to be Thursday. We're here. I think that's how I'm, you know, I'm spacing out my days is according to what event I got that evening. Mm-hmm. That tells me what day it's at. Mm-hmm. This is, this is, I think, my, my third Zoom call today. So it's been a, it's been a busy, busy <laughs> Thursday. It's been, yes, exactly. Celebrating birthdays via Zoom these days. That's what we do. So we are ready to get going. Eddie, who do we got <laughs> today? <laughs> hey, today we've got... Lupe Mendez. He's a poet, educator, and activist, author of the poetry collection Why Am I Like Tequila on Willow Books. And uh, most recently, he won the John A. Robertson Award from the Texas Institute of Letters for the best first book of poetry. He's got an MFA from UTEP, and uh, his poetry's been like everywhere Luna, Luna, Tinderbox, Rabbit Catastrophe. Uh, the list goes on and on, but my, my favorite one on here is Poetry Magazine poetry they, they rejected me like four times so i'm thinking this is a really really big deal uh, to mm-hmm. be in poetry magazine where you at lupe right here thanks for having me on it's so uh, good to see your beautiful face i know right it's good to see you guys there's a pineapple in the background and a mirror i'm in the bedroom best place yeah. for poetry reading yeah <laughs> The bedroom is where the real poetry is. <laughs> that, that, all that. Magical poetry. All right. Well, speaking of poetry, we're going to cut out here. We're going to let you do your thing because that's what we want to do. We want to hear you and your work, new, old, recycled, whatever. You know, this is your time. Uh, take uh, it away. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, okay. So to everybody out there, um, thanks for joining us. And uh, here we go. Um, first poem up, um, Manos, a prayer holding night. A fist, no, bullets out, the pop of skin, the twist of wrist where scars pox out, cool rubbed together where the air runs to hide, fresh seconds of fresh wounds, el significado de un trancazo, gutting a confetti of fish scales, tocando 
those monedas siempre, the rash that spiders out into bleed, reaching out into a pitch so black, gripping collected corn husks, looking for change in pockets, metal across jawbones, biting bricks against me, against me, combs of warm water in hair, bandages holding paychecks, shovels up in the wet ground, translators with tongues slur, a shave with a sizzling knife, abriendo ataúd sin pesame, age measured in caguamas, red slices to a calf's throat, the nails that scratch white, dotted knuckles, magnetic cold bones on card tables, blisters wrapped in mint, a heart that waits to beat, a shake in the forearms, glass shards in tendons, boxing practice lessons, seconds jabbing reflex, boiled water thrown, thunder up on body, hacksaw for limbs, weighted fingers, axes split roots, the back of ribs, a flung machete, palms, cup, clap, tenderness, waiting, a prayer, holding night. Um, so a few of these are gonna come from this book, uh, Why I Am Like Tequila, and there's the cute sticker that they gave me for the award. Um, uh, so, so far, so good. Um, thanks for everybody who was able to come through. And um, this is the title piece for the collection, um, Why I Am Like Tequila. Um, the way this works is it's got a lot of end notes. So if you've never had the book, there are the end notes and uh, footnotes. And so uh, you'll hear me call out letters or numbers. Um, and those will be the footnotes at the end, right? Um, why I Am Like Tequila. I have fencas one growing out of my body, beautiful blue maguey veins stretching, brown hands breathe in the sun. Let me bleed slowly. Every seven years I am birthed, dissected, cannibalized. When I am useless, bury my husk and black wreaths too, que toquen conjunto, three next to white candles lit on nights when the moon won't shine, drink for me, cry for me. Mi corazón es un mesample, four layers in white flesh in the center, white blood cells, nectar seeping through the body. Greso, ready to fight, cut this out, fracaso y espinas, boil it out of its chambers, warm, viscous and clear across my chest, it beats in the heat of the day. Soy Jimador, five. Consultalache six, who is alone in uneven cerros, who clears rocks that clutter growth, who won't leave until the job is done, who digs in the night, whose back is good enough to plow, who goes home and fucks, who is determined to plant a good seed, who eats with his hands, who sleeps in the callejones of maguez, who dreams before his heart is plucked, who cuts at ladrones in the fields, who cleans casanga seven after a dirty battle. One, pencas, noun, the arms of a maguey, a leaf, a blade, an arm that stretches out, that reaches out, that flexes out, that flushes forward, that first limb that touches the dew that extends into the palm of a Mexicano. Two black wreaths, una chingadera, 
my mi papa won't let us put a wreath on the door says it's blanquitos who want to remember death that is why you have a wreath a simple announcement someone has just died the first time mi mama and him drove around in 1974 he couldn't breathe asked why so many people died in the month of december shook his head mastriste shook his head and said me acuerdo del señor davila died from a fever running around one summer durante el tiempo de las aguas recogiendo sus caballos three conjunto the name of a genre of mexican chicanx text mex cuban music featuring instruments including fingers bajo sextos hearts vocal cords harps adobe violines agonía liquor dirt floors botines acordeones espíritu gente huisteca gente jarocho pobreza riqueza a dance hall two backup singers making a dollar each in 1968 and a lookout to make sure that La Jura or the Texas Rangers don't show up to string someone on the branch of a roble, an oak tree, baboso, an oak tree. Four, mesontle, a heart. The gritty center in the center of a plant where tequila comes from, your soul emanates from this grainy thing, fluid a bit, not blood, but molten rock rather. Your soul comes from water, comes from mercury, runs, runs hot while you love until you are cold. When you touch, lock eyes, embrace from warmth, feel in this chest for this ember, this ember, this ember. Five, himador, noun, every Mexicanex who has ever lived, who has ever died, who has ever sweat, who sings corridos a trio, a bolero, a cumbia, the image of a huichola, a rascuachero, a G.I. Joe, a mariachi, a viejo, una reina, una diosa, una tamalera, the man who makes this liquor you love to down in a single shot, you wasteful shit by pulling up the root for your drink, by pulling up at your job, by working when you spend time reading this poem and resting right now, he is at work, call back later, six talache, really? A tool, a pickaxe, older than you, shares the age with dirt, with work, with iron, with rust, with wood, with houses, with bridges, with dig, with dug, with ditch, with with edge, with groove, siete, casanga, nombre, uno, a sickle, a tool, sharp cuts into a half moon, leaves in a half moon, boss, the tool of revolution in September, tres, the primo hermano to the machete and the talache cuatro, the shit ninjas would use if they were originally from Mexico or Central America, cinco, the thing under my bed to ward off evil spirits, seis, a weapon born at the same time of Wittsipochli, a slick of his copete, the moment he was born. He took it, spat on it, made it metal, made it hot. When he used it to cut at his sister, making her head the moon and his brothers making them the stars, that boy is real good. Escuchastes el puro Um, So these next two pieces um, are not from the collection and actually pretty new. Um, and since Eddie had already mentioned uh, Poetry Magazine, um, both of these are are found there. Um, the first one is um, the first piece that'll probably come out in a new collection that I'm working on. Shh, don't tell nobody. Um, rules at the Juan Marcos Huelga School, even the unspoken ones. This should be posted in every classroom until the end of the school year. One, no more than one child out of the classroom at one time. They might run away a monarch tugged in the direction of the wind. Two, the upstairs classes will not make excess noise because there are no classes and the noise carries downstairs. Two, noise that needs to be made should flame out in a bonfire out of the roof where sunlight can hear it all. Three, 
any mothers coming into the classroom, send them to the principal's office unless they are teacher's helpers. They need to go to help the principal birth a school that can speak and spell words like revolucion and work and hands and huelga for no running in the hallways or stairs. Wait for nighttime, children. And you can run and race around in the dark and the cool of the trees, yelling, you cut a star on the tip of your tongue, then you realize, ran around till morning, and it is the dew on the tips of tree leaves you taste. Five, no screaming or shouting in the classroom hallways or the stairwells. Shout on paper, write boldly in a book in the middle of an open field in the street and the classroom. Make sure your voice shrills. Six, no throwing of paper or trash on the floor. In my classroom, I will teach you to throw Molotov cocktails, bright orange ones that whistle in the air. And when they smash on those crazy school laws, they will burst in and open bright yellow, the scent of lemon burst wood that will take over for a few days, seven. No one can go to Papa Burgers. In the future, the streets are still the same. And in December, on a Tuesday afternoon in 2016, one of your descendants will be stabbed merely for standing in the day. The North Side knows scars, knows body when it needs to mourn. Eight, if you take your class to the park, be sure that everyone crosses the street going and coming. Move in packs, march the streets together, keep the body flickering, make the voice resist quiet. This going, this coming is resistance. Nine, all shirts will be buttoned. This is how we mean business. You come to school, bien fino, and we will teach you the four winds, the reason we are always armed to the touch of a blade. We are always blades, bien filosos, bies. Be sure that your classroom is reasonably clean before you let the class out at the end of the day. One day, all of these classrooms will no longer hold any of us, leave no evidence why we were here. We exist in the whisper, the tender cinnamon string in muscle, marcha, ya. And I think that's my 15. And then I'll save the last one for the end. Or do I got more time, guys? Keep going. Yeah, one more. Sweet. All right, cool, cool. Um, so then I'm going to do um, one for, because even though we're dealing with like quarantine stuff um, for folks uh, back home in Houston here, um, this still has some echoes uh, in current day. Uh, Mercy, which is a poem about uh, Harvey. Immigration officers call off a massive hunt. State, there are too many hurricanes in the area they want to pick apart. We go right back to work in Houston, ask families what they need after Harvey. One lady sits on a chair outside her place, dips a piece of mold in her black coffee. She hands us bricks, wet ones, says to take them to help build that new wall said they won't even stop all the raindrops from crossing over in the night. A little girl traces a water line and crayon in one room, hasta aquí llegó on tippy toes. Another man hands us his dripping eviction notice. His face is soggy with fright. He tells us the cops will be here soon to kick people out into the waterlogged streets. He asks us to find the word mercy in the dictionary and rip the damn thing out. I love that. 
Fazer aplausos, fantástico. Aplausos, 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 aplausos. Lupe Mendes, everybody. Fantastic. And I got to tell you, Lupe, uh, yeah. I'm monitoring the comments here on Facebook, and you're getting a lot of love. Yay! Um, people just screaming your name, basically. There's a lot of Lupe! <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I wanted to I wanted to open by asking you, why are you like tequila? But you answered that question for us. <laughs> so, so like, <laughs> I kept on thinking of the cop. Like, so I've been I've been a teacher for I have gray hair now, so things right. Um, but I learned as a fifth grade science teacher that like the human body sheds every single one of its cells in approximately seven years. So like it remakes itself, right? Like every single cell is replaced. And so I thought of the concept of that and then it always stuck out. My, my family is from Jalisco. And so mm -hmm. making tequila is like half my family works in the tequileria. So tapatios, right, right. They're full thought. So like conceptually it's all that. And then the fact that it takes seven years for a maguey to grow full size, to take the root and then make that into a pulque and then mezcal and then tequila, right? So then, then I thought of the idea of how is, what are the pressures that the body goes through, right? Like either self-imposed or things in life or when you are tested and boiled and placed in fire. And then there's a moment when you're on that downhill side, like everything that awful is happening, at some point you've got to come up. And for me, I feel like that's when you're bien fino, like the most refined version of you possible exists after a certain period. And so I'm like, then every person I know is a certain form of some kind of a liquor because you're <laughs> strong, you're refined, like you're doing it all. But it's it's like that concept. And so like, I thought, well, what the hell, that's a Bible program. Damn, we got real deep just like two minutes into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's that stuff, right? Lupe Mendes, everybody. Lupe Mendes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you said you you said that part of your your uh, discussion here. You said at some point you're bien fino, and you said bien fino before you said fine. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of that in your poetry. You you're using uh, a lot of Spanish words, um, and not just Spanish words, but I noticed like uh, like colloquial. South mm -hmm. Texas or Texas kind of words too. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, what yeah. is that role? What is the role of that, that kind of language in your poetry? I think it's, it's the only way I know how to process, of course, like as, as um, being a kid growing up in Texas, uh, in the, the US Southwest, uh, but then also a Gulf Coast kid, right? Like you're an amalgam of all sorts of different things, right? So um, conceptually, like the number of Mexicanos that live in Texas that are not from Northern Mexico, that are from the Western side. So Jalisco and, and the mountainous regions, the level of language is slightly different, but then it's also all the things that you're learning here, as well as all the things that are English that are different from both the West Coast and the East Coast. And so it's all this amalgamation, right? Like my mother grew up in South Texas. Um, so she's from San Benito and my dad's from just outside Guadalajara. So the house was always filled with such a beautiful array of language that that's, that's I'm able to like code switch in so many different ways that I think 
writing became a part of that too like where where did all these levels of language exist and are there things that i now that i'm older i'm like people don't say nobody else around me says that and that's but i know at some point somebody at somebody's house knows exactly what i'm talking about so <laughs> let's go let's go i told like you when you said that word kawama when you said kawama i'm like oh that brings it back yeah that's it though. yeah like, how where you know where the diver- like you say kawama in certain spots and like i don't know that everybody in texas knows what one is but you go south texas you go cali you go chicago like mexicanos from certain regions that's the deal and like that's that's how language moves right mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so yeah this idea of like code switching you know like it's it's where is it in your in your writing that you you find the comfort to switch from one to the other you know like do you intentionally decide like where you're going to insert your spanish or is it just like something that organically happens you know when i'm first writing a piece sometimes it just it's it's i can't think of any other words that describe it best so i'll flip into one or the other and then in the rewrites or the edits as i'm going through uh, and i'm thinking like there's parts of my brain that as i'm writing i'm like translating the work into one or the other language Mm -hmm. like it just becomes a part of what that is and so it i'm just like oh that sounds better this way and and i'll play with with the way that looks um other times i will I find like that if I write completely in Spanish, I have less editing to do. Mm. And I don't know mm. what that, I, I don't get it. Like I would think I would, because like, I think I might have a senior high school kid level of language in Spanish, uh-huh. <laughs> but it's cause it's not exactly academic, but it's built academically because of job, like out of necessity, but I don't feel as, so I would think like my brain's like, you're probably going to need more editing if you're writing completely in Spanish. Whereas in English, I will spend twice as long on a poem that I do in Spanish. And it, 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 it's weird. But. I was going to ask you, because like, uh, you know, our audience would like to know, like you grew up in the States. Yes. Yeah. I will. So the technical side, right? So um, my early years up until about freshman year of high school, um, we traveled so stateside, I would be here from October until March. Mm. And then I would spend uh, April until September in Mexico. Mm. And so I, my teachers would give me assignments and they're like, finish this. And when you come back, you'll go to the next grade. We'll give you a test and move it on. It was part of like the being able to get away with it because my folks put me in a private school. Um, because every public school wanted to put me in special ed because they didn't have ESL Mm. programming and so the way my parents got through it was to put me to private school but that allowed us to move and travel and then go home and farm and then come back Mm. Um, and so by the time I got into like middle school like right about seventh eighth grade I was like can we stop I just I'd like to be in one spot and then yeah so that's that's the way it worked yeah the beauty you you truly did have like both cultures like oh immersed you know it wasn't like a vacation to mexico you oh it was like like it was like oh you got to go visit family i was like i was milking cows at five in the morning what are you talking about <laughs> i was getting eggs shut your mouth 
but come on, like at this point in life, like you wouldn't have had it any other way, right? Oh like, yeah, no, it's funny too. Cause like, I think about like the images of, of what we understand is poverty or second class citizenship or any of that stuff. Right. And I had the, I, I was fortunate enough. I consider myself fortunate enough that even though stateside, we would be considered poor. I still had the luxury and the, the privilege of being able to travel to the mountains in Mexico and then grow growing up on a beach in Galveston. Like I'm eight block, I, I can get on my bike and two minutes later I'm on the beach or I like walk outside my family's house in Mexico and I'm staring at a cerro. Like beautiful, blue, like invite, like, yo, richest life I could ever have lived. So like, now what, what did that do for like identity between being Mexican and Mexican-American? Yo, that Jack, still, there, <laughs> the number of times I get, like, folks trying to call me on the table, they're like, you're not really Mexican, or you're not American. I'm like, hey, I've got letters to prove you absolutely whatever. Let's have conversations. Um it's it, I'm always I always constantly feel on the outside if that makes any sense like, oh yeah yeah I think that's a there's different ways that I think that's part of the 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 draw to writing and to poetry like all of us have this need to want to belong and we don't in certain ways and so we put that out there to almost like a uh a call out as to this is who I am and this is where I fit. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's still moments. I'm 43 and I'm like, I don't quite fit in with all the stuff that's happening. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I got, you know, I got to live a little bit in Veracruz. And yeah. uh, when I was there, people called me gringo and pocho. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, like, it's funny. I'll go home and they're like, hey, your accent's off. And I'm like, it's because I married a Dominican. They're like, oh, it's like, anytime I have a conversation with my, my family in Mexico, they're like, you have such a strange accent. <laughs> I think I essentially I just um, I'm I'm a southerner, you know, like right, I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I'm a South Texaner. Right. You know? <laughs> and and even that it also perplexes me too. Like I can go to South Texas to visit family. And the amount of shit I get for being even this complected. Like mm -hmm. my family's like, oh, maybe you should stay in more. You shouldn't get so dark. And I'm like, what? Like where <laughs> who are you? Where do you think we are? Like, how did what? Stop, stop talking. You're like, like maybe you should stay in more. <laughs> that it's that accent right it's like but then it's also like i've i've literally tried to write a poem about the old oh, this is so bad the 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 viejitas who do the the rosary at at velorios in the valley the uh -huh. the, the the accent in english uh -huh. because they're not doing the velo the the rosary in english in spanish they're doing it in english right so it's this like wicked south texas like uh our for our father who are in heaven hello be dang name <laughs> that kingdom come yeah. that will be done like it's just like and you only like 
you go and you hear it and you're like, oh my God, I'm in the valley. Like what, what the hell? <laughs> like, and it's, you, it resonates, but like, unless you all, you've been grown, if you've seen and grew up in, in South Texas, like you won't know that accent from anything. Yeah, yeah. San Antonio, Houston, Austin. I can yes. always tell when yes. I run into someone from yes. Valley where I'm like, you have a 956 number, don't you? Uh, <laughs> I think it's a rhythm, though. It's a rhythm. You, it it's, is the it's rhythm. It's not necessarily like the accent. I mean, part of this is accent. Part of it's a rhythm that you kind of okay. you kind of develop and or lose. You know, I've been out of the Valley for 20 years um, and I might have might have lost some of it somewhere. But when I go back, no, all the set the bega, all the long vowels. Oh, so let me ask you, Luke, because you've you've lived all over, right? Um, you went to school in El Paso. You you know, like lived in the valley, like, and now you're in Houston. You know, and so there there are places like El Paso, like the valley, that are very Mexican. They're very Latino esque. Um, and then Houston, which is, which is truly like just a mer like a melting pot of everything. How do you find the, uh, the Latinx community is different in a very Latin centric city versus a city like Houston that is, you know, like a mix of all. You know, what's funny is, so when I got my degree out of UTEP, I did the whole program online. So the few moments that I physically got to go on the campus were breathtaking because I could go on campus and literally it'd, it'd be the only time ever in my academic life where I was hearing full-on conversations in Spanish on a college campus. And I that didn't happen for my undergrad. And I, But interestingly though, going to undergrad here in Houston, having grown up on the island, having, having uh, traveled between the Valley and Galveston and uh, uh, Mexico. When I got to Houston, it I think it was like my second week on campus at the University of St. Thomas. And there were four of the most beautiful Gucci-fied girls I'd ever seen in my life. Las like fresas. Las Fresas, yo. But like <laughs> they're at, when I heard them, they were all Latina, all like dark haired sunglasses, big, huge aretes, all in black, tacones, but like, pulseras por donde quiera. Mm -hmm. But their Spanish, I had never heard it in my life. And my first thought was like, damn, y'all fine. And then my second thought was, what is that Spanish? I've And I literally raced to my dorm room and called my mother and I was like, mom, there are brown people with money? And she was like, <laughs> she was like, you've never understood and it was like I it was a humbling moment I had never once associated uh brownness with mm -hmm. with like anything richness. other than than yeah with richness and so that threw me for a loop when I got to Houston like the number and different ways that Latinidad exists that Latin America uh isn't just um, the images that I knew growing up as as stuff that was based in campesino life, like metropolitan, like the the world, the 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 Americas's oldest cities are older than the the U.S. Like our the literature just alone, and as an example in Mexico, like the first uh, American female writer is Sor Juan Inés de la Cruz. Like culturally, those are necessities to study and understand, and so. 
as I got older and became more aware of what was out there, um, it, it felt comfortable to have conversations with Latinos who weren't just Mexicano or, or anywhere else. I, and I ended up marrying a Dominican. So obviously things <laughs> are great. Right. You're like, there's like a, a pan Latinidad there. You know, that, that, it's that, it's that stuff. We Speaking have, of Latinidad, you know, like you, you, I've heard in your poems, uh, you dropped a lot of the X in there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what's that been like? Because it's, you know, in, in, um, in, in I'm, I'm 43 also. So it's relatively a new thing to do and to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I keep going into, I shouldn't do this, but I keep stepping into Facebook. And when people are like, I'm not that's next, I'm Hispanic. And I'm like, okay, that's great. Um, none of these words were created by us. So what does it really matter? Uh, it's, it's whatever it is for whatever, you know, someone wants to label you one way, deal with it and move on. I, I appreciate the, the way that language can change and it needs to change and can change. And if it's because of political need, um, and, uh, addressing the the necessities of a space then what the hell why not um before the word hispanic was used it was latin so adding an x at the like one extra letter doesn't like mess up who you are and how you exist in the world uh are is it still going to be used to pigeonhole you in a negative way possibly can you then control the language and shift it to say something else okay great um we by the same token like words like um uh being being um rasquache or tapatio or you know whatever those those things are um isqueano, like any of that stuff those are also changes in language like the, they are derived from things and times change and if, if everything were to stay static we would still be speaking in old english so whatever yeah, you see a lot of it too in the in the queer community. That's the word I like to use. But you know where it was like LGBT, and then it was LGBTQ, and then LGBTQIA, and it's like all these right. different uh, the nomenclature of how people want to identify. And I think it's just a thing of ownership. You know, like finding the way that you identify and grabbing onto that and accepting that people identify differently. You know, I like right. to use the term queer. Other people are offended by it, but it's it's the identity that I have, you know, found a home in. Right, and, right, and that's exactly that's what it speaks to. It's it's how can how can you reach out as much to find inclusivity mm -hmm. in the way language works? Because Spanish, unlike English, is hella masculine and like why not? Language, yeah. What? No. <laughs> like what's the really? Because like. What a, like how would so if it's a group if there's like two girls in a group and there's five guys in the group then everybody's muchachos. Hell no, that's not the way. <laughs> Grammatically, that's wrong. Still, so what? A, like all of that stuff, right? So I mean, we just had uh, the other los niños, you know, right. and that's like include boys and girls, jóvenes. Like it should just go with a different word, like niñex, 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 niñex. Yeah, I, I remember hearing uh, a podcast where they were talking about like a non-gender specific way of saying niece and nephew and they came up with like niefling or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> trying to invent 
ways to include everybody, you know, right, so it's, right. a it's a process. Um, we have a fantastic question from the audience. I'm over here watching the, the Facebook comments. Um, Patricia Smith has a question. And if this is the Patricia Smith, I'm fangirl. It is. It is. It is. It is. Oh my gosh. Patricia yes. Smith is on. Hi, Patricia. Yes. She's watching our show. What? She's watching our show. I love you. Um, so she has a question regarding code yes. switching. And I'm just going to okay. read it because uh, it's beautifully written because it's Patricia Smith. Uh, <laughs> It's a code switching. It's a familiar concept to me as an African-American poet who uses cultural references and vernacular not readily familiar to anyone outside the community. I'm drawn to your work because I feel so many parallels, but the Spanish is often a line that's difficult for me to cross. I hesitate to stop reading in order to look up the translation. Often the passages are lengthy and I can infer most of the narrative from what surrounds it, but how much is that other reader in your mind as you write, if at all? Do you worry that some readers will walk away with only part of the experience you intended? Love the question. Thank you, Patricia. You're amazing. Um, to answer the question, I find that language, because it's a part of cultural understanding, shifts very much in the same way, the parallels that, that Patricia was speaking to. Um, there are moments where I wonder, will the person who's reading this only get a part of this? And then I have to think humbly, um, am I getting someone like my old man to read a poem? Which at the end of the day, I want to be able to have the most machista guy, bien, bien culero el cabrón, to, to like read one of my poems, right? And, and if I can figure out a way to address the language enough that because there are already obstacles with the level of English that I use, Am I not addressing those readers potentially who were Spanish speaking? And so I am okay with if someone only gets a part of it because there is going to be another part of my audience that won't get all the English. And so the emotive nature of the work, the context, the, the image and the whole picture hopefully comes across uh, the best way it can, um, and and to help move the needle on bilingualism, um, I'm a massive advocate for it. And so, um, I would like my audience to consider that for themselves. Like, if you only came away with a piece of this, um, think of everyone who doesn't speak English. They got something different from that experience, and. Um, yeah, I, I don't need, I hope that answered the question, but yeah, like I, I think of, I think of those terms. I think of my old man. I, I've never been able to read my dad a poem. Um, he wouldn't understand either all of the Spanish or all of the English. He's only got a second grade, uh, level of language. Like I retaught my dad reading and writing just enough for him to pass the citizenship exam. And so like I was in middle school when that process was happening and that was humbling. And so 
language wise yeah i keep that in the back of my mind like am i being arrogant in creating the language the way i do and adding in the spanish i don't intend it that way but if if a part of you comes away from the work and think man what was that other piece of it i'm okay with people looking things up i'm okay if you stop in the middle of a poem and then go look it up and then come back to it that's great um or if you save it or if you never do um i it's i want it there so that it's jarring enough to remind people of what are all the capacities that language can exist in. Mm -hmm. do you think there's like a, a parallel with your students who are probably reading something in english and see something that's also in English, but not something they understand because, uh, you know, the test or the text was written somewhere else uh, with a more elevated maybe English that they're not getting it too. You know, I, so I've, I've been a teacher for quite some time and I started to wrestle with what we consider academic English and then pushing back and then providing my kids the understanding that their level of English is important. That what the language that they know from their houses to the street, to the school are important spaces to be in. Um, every year that I taught English for the last five years, previous to this year, um, I now I'm a teacher trainer. Um, I would start off the year by showing the kids uh, Jamila Scott's um, poem that she did as a, as a TEDx, where she literally talks about um, using Caribbean English to talk at home, using street vernacular uh, for working with friends, and then her academic language because, oh yeah, she's got a doctor. Like, and that level of, that's, that's the code switching. Like, we can say it might be all levels of English, but it's not because those are all different languages in and of them themselves. Like it's got its own syntax, it's got its own lexicon. So, but all of those are valid ways to comprehend and process the world. So why not use that? So I started doing that with my coursework. Um, I pulled in um, as many writers of color that I could uh, and then created an entire course uh, around authors of color uh, to do away with the myth that the canon had all the access points. Um, I used Patricia's work. I used Carmen Tafoya. Jimmy, I've used your work um, to, to be able to express to the kids, like, this is how language exists. And if you caught it real fast, that made you the expert. And if you had to look up the other parts, that means that you are learning. And what better way to be a better reader and a writer than to question and explore and research what this stuff really is. Let's, but, let's dive into the work that you do just a little bit more uh, for yeah. those who may be unfamiliar, because you are an educator. Uh, you, you are an institution in Houston, just in case you're <laughs> unaware. <laughs> you are an institution. Um, and you started uh, Tintero Projects. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what, what that is and what that experience has brought to you and the, the community of writers in Houston? Um, so Tintero Projects is, um, we are, I think we're now like four years old yet. Um, um, I originally started it to be able to provide a platform 
for Latinx and other writers of color um, across the Gulf Coast. Uh, the idea being, well, it was twofold. A, I was tired of only having to hear about the West Coast and the East Coast, done. I wanted to be able to put a foothold and be able to say, hey, there's a whole series of writers out of Houston and the rest of the Gulf Coast, Louisiana, all the way back down to Florida included, stop ignoring what's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, I correlated that with the idea that it, that was what was happening, especially with writers of color. And I worked at the, the same number of years that I was an educator, um, I worked with Nuestra Palabra Latino writers having their say here in town to promote uh, Latino writers for over 20 years. Um, and the one thing I kept learning was that if you find a space and if you can get people access to books, people will show up to readings and people will buy the stuff. If you can do that and give people a stage to do their stuff, magic every time. And so mm-hmm. I went back to that as a ground root and thought, as I, I kept curating other shows and doing all sorts of work and started noticing that I was running into fewer and fewer Latino writers in the Houston area. And so then I decided, well, let's go back to basics and let's try to see and provide a platform space so that anybody can do the work that they want to do. So uh, now Jasmine and I, um, with Tintero Projects, we do workshops, um, we provide um, readings, uh, book launches, um, and submission parties where we don't actually do the heavy lift. We just say, hey, here's a venue. We can pay you. You have stuff. Let's get it together and let's put it out there. And so uh, the workshops that we run, they're free. I run like the first half hour and it's like, hey, everybody, tell me who you are, what you ate for lunch and your favorite day of the week. And then I turn over the rest of it to the guest host who runs the workshop with what they know to do and what works. Mm-hmm. And that's that's it. Like if, if, if all we can do is become that advocacy piece to let people continue that, then why the hell not? Mm-hmm. Um, we, I, my biggest piece is the work that we're going to do is going to be for free because yeah, we'll take donations and that's great, but I don't, I'm not into any kind of, um, gatekeeping prospects. Like if you don't have the money to come in the door, I don't care. You deserve a space at the table. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And so that, that for me has always been a big blessing and that's, that's the way it's kind of flourished and it's it's been a good a good run so far um nobody's told us to get the hell out so uh we're still around (laughs) yeah you're getting a lot of affirmation in the in the facebook comments about your submission parties and the work you do so salute to you sir (laughs) way to go hey uh so you you uh talked a lot about being a teacher uh for a lot of years and now you're a teacher trainer you're teaching teachers right uh but what has teaching and interacting with students uh, at different ages done for your work? Yo, um, shit. <laughs> I, there's a moment at which, man, and I can't think of, <sighs> there's a poet out there in the Twitter, and I literally will be Googling this in like two minutes once this is over, um, who made the comment that poets 
are not observing observing an event that poetry is the event, right? And I'm so with that concept, but I also think that writers humbly have to take that moment, experience whatever that is, and then take a sliver of that and try to piece something, some kind of understanding to acknowledge that a person was there. Um, my first, my first year, uh, first two years of teaching, um, first year teaching, I lost a student um, right at about December. Um, student passed away because during the Christmas, during the, during um, spring break, um, their father, uh, just in a drunken rage, uh, drowned uh, my fourth grade student. And I had a hell of a time with this kid trying to get him to read. And it turns out that I hadn't realized it, but this kid went through my classroom library and stole like six books, two of which he would read to his youngest brother. And I carried that knowledge and had to translate for the mom so that she could go identify the body for the police. And so it, it moves you when you see the things that are happening to your students and their families. And sometimes because of the way that it affects you, because of where you are in that network, um, it becomes a, a, a moment of record. Uh, it becomes a moment of conversation. Uh, it becomes an ode. It becomes the elegy. Um, to speak about the, the students and their experiences. Um, in this current collection, I have one poem about um, the reaction of a priest to one of my students, uh, just as Trump had gotten elected, uh, and the kids wanted to hold a, um, a forum to discuss what were all the possibilities and what did we know and what did we not know about what was going to happen with his presidency, like what would happen, especially with undocumented citizens and their families, which was a real fear. Um, and my one of my students went to ask if they could have a forum on campus and the priest basically told them no, because the fear was that all the kids and their parents uh, would get stirred and riled up like wild, crazy Latinos, savage Latinos, and possibly burn piñatas in our in our patio. And this kid came to my classroom in tears. And what am I supposed to do? Like, A, I can confront the priest, which did happen, and I got written up, but whatever. But I'm not gonna not write a poem about your shitty ass response to my kids. So yes, I wrote a poem and dedicated it to you and put it in my book, cause mm -hmm. I'm gonna get the last word, shut your mouth. Mm -hmm. Here we go. <laughs> don't piss me was, don't piss you did write it after you write a poem about you <laughs> but you did write it after you were no longer working there though, right no i i wrote it like this book was getting put together while i was still working with that priest are in you, the building i don't know but i mean did you publish it after <laughs> lupe's uh, on, okay <laughs> i i it was, 
well, so like that young lady too, like I wrote the piece, um, I sent her a copy of the book and I dedicated it to her. And later she wrote me and said that it was the first, one of the first times in her life that anybody had done anything that felt like advocating for her mm. and that it was in the form of a poem was, was really awesome. And I hadn't thought of that. I was like, I'm pissed <laughs> off. I rang this poem. You suck. But <laughs> this other. That's awesome. No, that is awesome. For this kid, it's like a whole totally yeah. different thing. And I'm like, holy shit, I hadn't thought of that. And and so it's a byproduct. And that's awesome. Yeah. Students shouldn't see more advocates. Yeah. Let's yeah. let's dive into that a little bit because one of the things that you wanted to talk about is like morning writing, you know. Um and obviously like we all experience grief, we all go through, you know, troubled times. Um poetry isn't always, you know, optimistic. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a process, it's a, a therapeutic and we have to sit in the grief in the morning. Tell us a little bit about your experience with, with that kind of writing. Um, man, so I, now in my early forties, um, a lot of the work that I was working with has been very F you about all of it right like you're not going to get the best of me here you go bien chingon molotov cocktails bite me guess that you're right um but most recently um the last few months uh dealing with the the loss of several things like just well a little bit before the pandemic stuff started happening um I had already written a poem in the collection about um, my tia Maria's house in San Benito, Texas. And so I have don't have my grandparents on my mother's side. My maternal parent, grandparents passed away long before I was ever born. Um, my mother lost her mother um, at a very young age during childbirth. Uh, my mother was the middle of nine kids and my grandmother passed away with the ninth kid um and she lost my grandfather to tuberculosis and so the only last piece of of evidence of you know what family was in the valley was this house um 106 dig dowling right and um most recently when i i wrote the piece as this beautiful like almost half romantic whimsical poem about where my mother is from turned into something different because um, in this last year, um, a cousin of mine was murdered in the house. Uh, there's still an investigation pending, like there's stuff still up, but the, the somebody set fire to the house with my cousin's body still in it. And the house is now condemned. And so nobody can see the space. And so I thought, I could write more about this house, but in rereading that original poem, I didn't need to. Like, I didn't realize that sometimes as we're writing what we're writing, what we think is one thing becomes something completely different. Like the, the vestige of that emotional um, investment that you make to a writing can change the tone of it without you even thinking of it, right? So I feel like sometimes that the, the, the writing that we produce that we feel is one way pays respects to things in other ways, right? Um, the writing that we create that we feel is 
in mourning. Um, cuando uno anda de luto, it, it can change. Uh, the language later can be something else. We might not be entirely even aware of it at that moment, but subconsciously, maybe we are. Subconsciously, the body may be feeling it differently um, and producing the language in a different way. And so I thought about, I've been thinking about that a lot, uh, especially now during, during the pandemic. It, it almost feels counterintuitive, but I'm literally writing poems that don't seem so sad, but there is a, a solemnness to the way that they're, that they're coming about. And so I wonder what that'll look like uh, the further we step away from, from what this is. So. Yeah. You know, there's that process when you're uh, in, in mourning or at, uh, in our culture, like when you're doing the rosary and between each decade, there's a song. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, with, uh, I, I've been next to my sister at one of my cousin's uh, rosaries. And uh, she's like, is it almost over? And I'll say, no, we haven't sang um, Un Dia de la Vez yet. Or we haven't sang uh, Amor Eterno yet. Um, you know, like, but like, what, what, what is it about that, that ritualization, you think, in the morning? You know, the, the, like those, what are, are some of those elements, I guess, that you have to I think it's about, I think it's about trying to find some kind of organized way to process what is happening in a moment, right? Like everyone goes to a velorio, everyone mourns some kind of a loss. Um, it's the in-between, I think like the best parts of, of best parts, if that's, can you even say that best part? Best part of a, of a velorio is the message at the end when family members get up to speak and then who you end up connecting with uh, in that, that ceremony, in that space during the morning, right? Like you might end up in full conversations with family members and be seated with them for over an hour for a, a rosary reading that you hadn't spoken to in three years and now you've reconnected sadly you've reconnected in, in because of a certain thing um my tia maria used to say when you go to a velorio pay attention to who showed up not what they wore pay attention to what they said um because uh she would say even when i die uh, the, I'll be the, the very thing on their lips. And it, I thought about that as a catalyst, like someone's death causes a certain series of events to move forward. What do we make of those things after they've gone? Like, how do we continue, not just their, their you know, understanding of the world, but like what, what in the immediacy of a passing, what are those things that occur? And how and they, can you hang on to that? And they, you know, and they must call you El Poeta or the Poet. They must know by now Ooh. that you're out there and published. Family? Oh, oh. No, no, no. The funny part is, um, unlike my wife, my family, like, my parents have never been to one of my readings. Ever. Which, like, when, I, when the book came out, my dad was like, well, how much did you pay? How much did you pay to get this <laughs> And I was like, Dad, I didn't pay. Like, they made the book. They're like, that's the cover. 
yes, that's the cover. Well, I don't like it. Well, okay, but did you, well, how much, how much are people paying for the book? How much are you selling the book for? It's like $17.99. Oh, well, why didn't you do it for 20? But like, it's so like, they're like, are you going to quit your job? No, I'm not going to quit. Like, what? I don't. Okay. Well, yeah. thanks. <laughs> Did they pay you? Did you sign? I was contract? wondering. Yeah. And I was wondering, like, if you're, you know, if those that know, uh, maybe they're your, your younger uh, cousins who are like, are on the social media or whatnot. Has your role changed? Well, so my family in Mexico, whenever they see me, the like my my funny part, my um, what do you call it? My photo for my bios and stuff. It's always a shot that was taken when I was hosting uh, a, a reading, and I was on the mic. And so my cousins in Mexico think that like I'm religious. And I'm doing sermon <laughs> stuff. So what? Uh, I don't, huh? So no matter. But so like, yeah, like I have a few cousins that are like, hey, your work is really great. A lot of my family doesn't even know that. They're like, oh, he's a teacher. That's yeah. <laughs> so you you are obviously a, a prolific writer. Uh, you've been published in a lot of places. Uh, two questions. One is coming from the audience. Um, a lot of people are asking basically the same, different versions of the same question. Uh, Patricia Smith, I love you, Patricia. Uh, Patricia Smith, at, you know, says, I understand that you're raising a small, rambunctious human being. Since you and your wife are both writers, how do you practically find dedicated time for your work and creatively teach her that language and the writing of it is the most phenomenal thing there is how often somebody else asks how often do you write basically what is your work-life balance how do you manage writing and working and art and raising a family like and the Luz Maria show and, and filming the Luz Maria show yes. um she has more fans than you by the way just so yeah, you know. <laughs> I know I know that's a given um so it's well, funny, but not funny. So prior to being in a relationship, writing occurred from like eight o'clock at night until like two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Soltero life, doing the <laughs> shit uh -huh. um, on the nights that I wasn't out clubbing or whatever. Um, but when Jasmine and I got together, we have very different like body rhythms. So Jasmine's very much a morning person. And I am not. She, I am very much a like night owl. And so, prior to Luce being born, uh, we kind of staked our claims in. She'd write in the morning, and I'd write at night, and you know things are great um, because of the fact that Jasmine also deals with, uh, excuse me, lupus. It also shifted how we we engaged in the work, mm. um, how we shared our work. Um, we learned when to put the writing away out of necessity for like the things that were urgent, urgent, like health is, is a thing. So in the years where her lupus was treating her rather roughly, um, I wasn't getting a lot of writing done and I was okay with that. Like I, I, I wasn't pushing, I'm very much not a believer in the, you have to write every day because that is not being realistic. And those of us that are not afforded the opportunity to go to a cabin and write every day <laughs> because I have to change diapers and put on Moana 
for the 250th time, like <laughs> things. So things, right? Right. So yeah, I, I, now I get writing in where I can get it in. Um, uh, Jasmine's the same way. Like our schedules are, are super crazy now. Um, and so we can still eke by a fragment of what we were being able to write, but we, we try to make sure that we provide that space and time for each other. So um, Jasmine will get up in the morning and do some writing when everybody's dead asleep. Um, and then at night when everybody's dead asleep and Luz hasn't popped up at two o'clock in the morning because she wants somebody to go walk her back to the bed, we'll, we'll write that way. In the middle of the day, I'll take Luz to go a walk around the neighborhood while she tries to read or write something. Uh, the same thing with me. She'll take her to go take care of some stuff. And, and we, we work in tandem that way sometimes. Um, Sounds like a beautiful partnership. <laughs> right. We try. It's a dance. <laughs> yes. Every day. Every day is a dance. Hey, I, I've got one more question. I don't know about trivia, but I got one more question. Yeah. Uh, and it's about, about origins. I just want to know about the magic of San Benito, Texas, home of uh, Freddie Fender. Freddie Fender! Octavio Quintanilla. Yeah. And, uh, and your mom and, uh, you know, your, your family. Yeah. Like how, what, what is the magic there in that little, because it's a little town. It's tiny. Um, I think for me, it has always spoken to a history that I, I identify with in a very, not weird, but a very different way. Like every time you see images of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s in the U.S., it's American Graffiti or Pearl Harbor, the movie, or uh, different, Greece, right? Like different aspects of that. But going through my mom's yearbook from 1955 and seeing that everybody in the damn yearbook was brown and that like in my mom's generation when she was in high school, they taught shorthand. And so all the damn notes in the yearbook are written in shorthand. And I asked her, why the hell did y'all write it in shorthand? She's like, well, we didn't want any of the adults reading our stuff. And I was like, <laughs> mira que, what? Like that, <laughs> I didn't, and then like, like, yes. like, yeah, like that whole, and I'm like, that's not any of the images that I see and what I understand was this time period. And then having conversations with, with older uh, elders um, speaking about what life was like in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, um, rationing things like you had ration stamps and kids drank like tablespoons of mercury to like cure a cough. Yeah, right. Like crazy shit that I'm like, when the hell was this? Like, what? What do you? Huh? But so like those are those understandings that I don't. That's I find that and the appeal for me is that spaces like South Texas are part of the counter narrative because you don't get to hear about all the things that these spaces were unless you go and ask the questions. Scholars and ethnic studies have asked the questions and are now producing the books about them. Mm -hmm. But unless you can find those, you're not gonna hear about it. 
And I am definitely engrossed in the concept of counter narratives because that's a counter history that needs to be out in the world. And it's, it's part of uh, my family's lineage. And so I, I love that space. We don't awesome. nine six. That, <laughs> all nine, yo. So, so uh, final question, because uh, you, again, you are a prolific and published writer and poet and an educator. And I feel like we would be amiss if we did not ask you to bestow your wisdom upon us. Uh, so what advice would you have uh, for someone, you know, up and coming writers who are trying to get published, they're trying to put their work out there because you, you have put your work out there and our voice for the Latinx writers and community. So what would you, what advice would you give to someone? Um, this is why I, side note, I think I love Patricia Smith and the conversations I've been able to have with Patricia acknowledge for me, like I was doing it right. Like uh, understanding that like my biggest piece of advice to anybody that's out in the world is do what Patricia has done and do what I'm telling you to do. Go to open mics, go to spaces in public, like cut your teeth on some raw, awful work and build, 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 because you won't know unless you're out there trying and talking mm -hmm. and immersing yourself in these spaces. Mm -hmm. um, I began uh, all of this through humbly attending uh, poetry spots here in Houston. And I didn't know what the, I, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about an MFA or that you could get a pay, you get, the fact that Poetry Magazine paid me to do a poem. Hey! <laughs> you told me that shit when I was, I'm 43. You told me that when I was 23, I'd have been like, what? Like, that, I didn't know this. Like, you learn through word of mouth. It's like schooling, but from a very base level. Mm -hmm. and, and don't, you know, don't believe your own hype. Like, mm -hmm. if you're only surrounding yourself with just one open mic space, go around and see the other ones because it's like you're only playing in your neighborhood. Dabble and go find, like go find all the spaces, go out of town and go visit somebody else's space. Um, learn who they're reading. What are they writing about? Read all those things, like catch and catch and catch and learn and learn as much as possible because what else are you going to do? Like yeah. not write, not read, <laughs> but huh? Go so, get heckled. <laughs> that, go get heckled. It's okay to that. Like that builds that. And I would also say try theater. Like go audition. Like there is, and I will still say this till I'm blue in the face. Everybody on Twitter and Facebook that ever writes about how sad they are that they got a rejection from a publication. I love y'all and I will hug you and I feel for you, but that ain't shit. <laughs> the immediacy of an audition oh, they oh. look you square in the face and tell you you're not our type you're too skinny you're too fat you're too short you're too tall you're too old you're too young bye and you're gone that yo like that'll firm you up real fast when it comes to rejection mm -hmm. I, if i had to tell you the number of times i got rejected in auditions that's like 10 times no i'm fine a, a rejection by letter okay that's great you sent me an email and you said thank you, no, you said thank you. 
You can thank you. Put it so kindly too. They're like, <laughs> yeah, so nice. work. It just didn't find a home in our publication this that time. Didn't find a home. Oh, I hate that. Oh, yeah. Again, try it. Yeah. I've literally had a director tell me to my face, I don't want to ever see you on stage here mm. ever again. Oh. Real talk. Well, yeah. And that's real. And then they're like, okay, next. What are you still doing here? Next. Yeah. Next. You're still standing there. Go. <laughs> on a side note, uh, if you haven't watched it yet, Hollywood on Netflix. I, I have it cute. I need I need to watch Ooh, it. Oh, it's all that. It's all that you just talked about. Oh, Done. I'm like watching. I'm like, oh, this is so painful, but so real. Uh, I think like I so like part of me too is like I am fascinated, but then also like huh, with with slam like the immediacy of how that poetry works. Mm-hmm. But then I'm also like, it's crowd stuff as well and it's like there's all sorts of levels to it and a part of me is like i could maybe nope nope because i gotta memorize a poem nope i find they're not lines and a script and there's no egg nope i'm gonna mm. mess that up I'm not gonna nope. <laughs> yeah. talk about cutting your teeth you know that, like, right that, that that'll do it that'll do it and some some venues are are friendlier than others mm-hmm. some are puro slam you know <laughs> <laughs> and and you know we all grow through the communities that we immerse yeah. ourselves yeah, so. yeah, yeah but yeah that would be my biggest uh, suggestion is uh find those spaces and begin there um because that's going to be your most earnest opportunity to try all the things you want to try. Yeah. I think awesome. there's nothing wiser there than just, you know, like get out into the community, you know, like writing is, is such a lonely activity, but it doesn't have to be the no. experience, you know, you can, yeah. you can get out there and immerse yourself with so many writers. So thank you, Lupe, for those, uh, that amazing uh, piece of advice and for this entire conversation that has been this was awesome guys thank you Kila worthy absolutely <laughs> um will you do us the honor of reading one more poem before yes. we close out please yes 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 um thank you everybody who tuned in i don't even know how many people but that's awesome uh i hope everybody's doing well stay safe wash your hands uh don't touch your face i just touched mine i I ruined that, whatever. Um, so one last piece, this one's from the May uh, edition of Poetry Magazine, um, dedicated to uh, Jose and Rose uh, Escobar. Um, Jose was uh, wrongly deported to El Salvador and was reunited uh, this past year with his family. Um, and so this is a piece I wrote for them. How candles are made. Epigraph. It was hard for me, but I still kept hope because I knew that my wife was by herself. Jose Escobar, quoted in Houston Area Man Returns Home After Sudden Deportation in 2017. Houston Public Media, July 2019. The candle is made of paraffin wax, made of petrol, crude oil, debajo de la tierra, donde viven los difuntos. When I say difuntos, I mean we come from seeds. A candle is a spine that holds all our bodies. Our bodies are pools of nothing crude. When we pass on, we're so full on deseo, on wanting. Some kind person crosses our arms for us to help carry the things we build onto. We want dreams. 
to warm us. In this deep sleep, our bones are the last to melt away. Avela is made of all of us, all of us bones, a slick dream in the shape of a cylinder, a spine that gets lit. We glare, become light, and sometimes when you look at Avela's tongue on fire, you become lost in the moment. You place everything into a flicker. Time is silent. That's what a wish is. Avela is a line lit on the nights when you are in La Union and she is in Houston. You are far from each other and your dreams fit into a wick. It is a slow burn. And sometimes, even when the body breaks, the backbone doesn't. Light up again. When rooms are full of shadows, there's one candle standing until there are two. And in your house, there are finally four standing together and that glow is up. We watch this in the slender wisp of smoke building in your home. We watch your fingers meet. You are candle skins that spade a yellow touch. You are a burn of molten heart and a single llama. A candelabra moves across every line in the sand, erasing every border of a room, every baseboard. Tonight, I light a vela for you, but you shine brighter. Together, you are always stay together. Thank you, guys. Hey, thank you. Thank you, man. Hey, uh, one more thing real quick. Uh, yeah. How do people find your book? Um, yeah. You can, um, I'll probably be reposting the link on Twitter and on Facebook, uh, but you can go to uh, willowbooks.net and uh, order the book from there. It's actually, I think it's still on discount. Um, and so you can, you can uh, buy the book there. Um, and if you go to my website, uh, thepoetmendez.org, it's like big old photo of the book <laughs> and, uh, you can click on the link and buy it from there. And that's your Twitter handle too, right? Is, uh, at, at the Poet Mendes. Um, at the Poet Mendes. and, uh, so yeah, uh, thank you guys for the opportunity. This is so much fun. This and, is uh, hey, thanks for stopping by. We were glad you said yes. This was awesome. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If y'all ever need anything, let me know. Uh, let's collaborate in some other way, too. Awesome. Um, if Dental Projects has your back. Little 956. We're going to do a 956 project. 956, for sure. Love it. Thank you so much, Lupe, for, for joining us here. Uh, this is brought to you by the Blog Poetry Spot and Write Art Out. Hey, like us on Facebook so you can get all that info. Like Please. us on Facebook so you get the notifications. And next week... Uh, next Thursday, 7.30, we are bringing you Dallas Poet and national uh, touring artist and winner, uh, Wayne Henry, is going to be joining us. No next shit. Week. Wayne Henry's coming? That's awesome. Wayne man. Henry's coming next week. What? And then, and then uh, I think we got Felita Hicks maybe in the in, We in got the Felita week. after that one, too. What? We got Felita from San Marcos, Texas. And oh, then God. Roscoe Burnham's from from what? from Richmond. I mean, you know, is we got a, a stacked month for y'all. So please join Friendly us. Links. <laughs> yes, oh, yes. Links. We will post them. We are here. Like the Blog Poetry Spot on Facebook. Obviously, if you're watching this, you probably already did. But anywho, so Lupe Mendes, 
Eddie Vega. My name is Chibi. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys. Amazing host. Good night. Good night. Good night. Night. Adios.